Next week is Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, and here at Shtetl, we're begging for your forgiveness for any sins we've committed on air this past year. To make up for any wrongdoing, today we have a powerful interview with activist Daniel Saradsky of Occupy Judaism and Snowblink's stirring rendition of the Kol Nidre prayer. So stay tuned. You can download this or past episodes of Shtetl on the Shortwave from iTunes or stream them from shtetlmontreal.com. Welcome to Shtetl on the Short Ribbon. Happy Jewish New Year to all our listeners. On Tuesday night next week at synagogues all around the world, people will be singing the Kol Nidre prayer and asking for all their vows from the year before to be annulled. But only here on CKUT can you hear pop star and cantor Daniela Gesundheit of Snowblink sing the prayer live. So Snowblink is going to be playing at pop montreal this weekend and uh you can check her out we're going to play some music from their new album inner classics later on in the show but before we hear from daniela gesundheit today's feature interview is with american activist and media strategist daniel saradsky the founding editor of jew school a blog about jewish culture and identity He's worked for Hebe magazine, wrote for the blog Orthodox Anarchist, and he's the spokesperson and main organizer of Occupy Judaism, which grew out of the Occupy Wall Street movement. And September 17th was the one-year anniversary of Occupy Wall Street, and the night before, Daniel Saradsky led a Rosh Hashanah service for 500 people in Zuccotti Park. And I asked Saradsky why he feels that Judaism is relevant to the Occupy Wall Street movement to the point that he held a Kol Nidre service there last year. And he said that he had started off by, by holding Shabbat services at Occupy Wall Street. 
And then a few days before Yom Kippur last year, he got a call from, from Rabbi Arthur Waskow, who is known for his civil rights activism. And Rabbi Waskow suggested that he lead a service for Kol Nidre. And Daniel, who has never led any religious service before, felt like, oh my God, this is crazy. This is not my thing. I can't do this. And it's only four days away. He said, no way. And in this clip, he explains what happened next. So I woke up the next morning after I got his email and told him no. And I woke up with the words of the prophet Isaiah in my head. The Haftarah portion that we read on Yom Kippur is one in which, you know, Isaiah asks us, what is the fast that God requests of us? Is it that we don ourselves with sackcloth and ashes and you know, starve ourselves for a day? Or is it that we go out and house the homeless and feed the hungry and clothe the naked? That's the fast God wants of you. And so I decided, you know, what would be a real expression of repentance and of, you know, Jewish values on Yom Kippur? Is it going to be being in a fancy, heated, uh, comfortable synagogue? Or is it going to be going out into the streets and standing up in solidarity with the homeless, the hungry, the naked, the oppressed? And so I decided, okay, I'm going to put some feelers out there and see if anybody wants to to come uh, do Yom Kippur services at Occupy Wall Street. And I put out a tweet, who would go, you know, if we did this? We had 400 people sign up on the website, and then I went down to Zakati Park to meet with the occupiers and to get their buy-in for what we were doing. And they asked me to use the service as a means to try to take over the plaza across the street to extend the reach of the occupation. And so the service itself transformed into, you know, this kind of uh, an action of civil disobedience um, because we didn't have a permit and we were taking over public space. And so I added to the call the words of Abraham Joshua Heschel, who said that prayer needs to be subversive. And, you know, said this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to put Judaism into action as a, as a tool that inspires people to take action on behalf of those in need and, and a vehicle for doing it, not just a symbolic reference to ideas of social justice. In that way, I really think that the um, Occupy Judaism has played a role in supporting the Occupy movement by bringing kind of a voice of, of moral clarity and authority from the Jewish tradition to support the cries of the oppressed, the downtrodden, the, the weak, uh, the poor, and uh, needy, you know, through the various actions that we've done, including the Yom Kippur service and building the sukkah, and just most recently with our Rosh Hashanah service. So that was Daniel Saradsky, and we're going to hear a little clip of the Rosh Hashanah service that he held this week at Occupy Wall Street. We know that even with all we've accomplished, we know that even with all we've accomplished, we're capable of so much more. We are capable, capable of so much more as individuals and communities and as a species. As individuals and communities and as a species. And so we cry. And so we cry. Because as the Talmud teaches, because as the Talmud teaches, when others are suffering, when others are suffering, no one should say, no one should say, I will go home, eat, drink, and be at peace with myself. I will go home, eat, drink, and be at peace with myself. 
myself. The severity of humanity's crisis. The severity of humanity's crisis cannot be understated. Cannot be understated. In Shemot Rabbah we learn. In Shemot Rabbah we learn. If all the troubles were placed on one side and poverty on the other. If all the troubles were placed on one side and poverty on the other. Poverty would outweigh them all. So that was Daniel Saradsky's sermon at Occupy Wall Street on September 16th this year. Occupy Wall Street uh, made this week's Rosh Hashanah service an official event on their calendar and fully supported it. 500 people came out and many people told Saradsky they were very touched by their experience. But from a behind the scenes perspective as an organizer, he was disappointed. I got a lot of positive responses from people saying that they were very touched and that it was a very meaningful, moving experience for them. I also got complaints from some people who didn't care for the fact that this service was less traditional than our previous services and kind of took a more renewally tack in the liturgy. Um, And there were two reasons for that. One reason was that we knew that because of the popularity of the Yom Kippur service, but there were going to be a lot more non-Jews participating. And, and sure enough, half the crowd was not Jewish. And so we did a lot less you know, traditional Hebrew prayer in order to accommodate that audience and make the service meaningful for them as well. Mm-hmm. But then also, compared to previous Occupy Judaism events, this time trying to get volunteers was like pulling teeth. You know, after Yom Kippur, you know, we had like a dozen volunteers step up for Yom Kippur to, you know, lead services, plan services, help us get monsters. Everything was amazing, the outpouring of support. And now a year later, when it came to getting volunteers for Rosh Hashanah, I had to beg people to, like, do it. And then people had the nerve to complain to me who didn't volunteer oh, I didn't care for how non-traditional this service was, and I feel alienated now from what you do because it wasn't like last time. So, like, you know, where do you get off criticizing the service that you could have volunteered to participate in? <laughs> you had every opportunity to do it, and you didn't. This is like you know? probably at every synagogue across North America, people are feeling this way right now because people are so often unsatisfied with their services, right? But they, it's hard to know how to, or people don't want to volunteer to change things. So I'm sure that a lot of other people feel exactly how you're feeling right now. But also, I wonder, do you think that that's kind of a statement about where Occupy Wall Street is right now? I, well, so, so two things. One is the thing that really got me about this and why I'm really upset about it, because I know that this happens in every shul. They had the chutzpah to try davening over the, one of the service leaders who was like, you know, super renewally in her framing of the liturgy. So I considered that incredibly rude. You know, I thought that that was just real chutzpah dick and unacceptable. And it really hurt my feelings in a big way and really left a very bitter taste in my mouth, and therefore the experience wasn't as positive for me as it was for many other people who had attended. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, you know, the Occupy movement has waned in some ways. Um, There's clearly not as much energy and support and excitement about the movement as there was previously because the movement had been so attacked in the press and so devoured by its own internal politics and all this other stuff, you know, people have soured on it. At the same time, you did see many thousands of people out in the streets on S-17, and there were still thousands of people involved in, in planning and organizing and making it happen. And the thing that's happening with Occupy is that it's maturing as a movement, and it's not the same movement that it was a year ago. So you still have a lot of stuff happening, and the movement is alive and well. Occupy isn't dead, no matter what anybody else says. 
with Occupy Judaism, you know, the reality is I've carried this thing on my back um, in a huge way. And I've tried to deputize people and give them uh, responsibilities to take on. You know, it's supposed to operate in the same way that, that Occupy Wall Street did in terms of being an anarchistic effort where, you know, anybody who wants to volunteer and be involved can be involved. But the reality is, so many people just wanted to be involved to offer an opinion and then leave all the work for, for others to do. And at the end of the day, so much of what happened with Occupy Judaism had to do with me spending my money and my time on making things happen for other people to come and enjoy it without actually contributing anything back to it. And so, you know, that's the other reason why I'm really upset about the reaction that some people gave me to the service on Sunday. And so that's where Occupy Judaism is. Like, I'm at a point in my life where I'm tired of going to the wall to defend a progressive Jewish community and its interests that doesn't actually get my back when, when I need the help. When I look for volunteers, they're not to be found. When I ask people to take actions, you know, online or to join me in actions, they're not there. And it's either that I'm a terrible organizer or people really just don't care enough about the things that I care about, and I'm wasting my time trying to motivate that. And so, you know, I can get all these compliments on my sermons, and I can get all these compliments on the work that I do, and, but at the end of the day, I'm just one guy fighting a fight all by himself, and I'm kind of tired of it. And so at this point, you know, I'm moving on from Jewish community activism because I just don't feel like it's particularly rewarding. So being somebody who works really hard for what he believes in and who truly speaks his mind, Saradsky is clearly, you can hear his frustration, and he doesn't easily get supported from the Jewish establishment, and he's obviously feeling kind of misunderstood and let down by the left. But he he has a lot of really important comments to make, and we're going to hear more from him. First, we're going to take a break, and when we get back, he's going to tell us exactly what Occupy Judaism is about. We'll be back in a few minutes on Shtetl on the Shortwave. This is King Django, and you're listening to Shtetl on the Shortwave on CKUT 90.3 FM. My heart's in the east, but the work is out west. I'm sitting on the fence. Try to make sense of the hours Every move is numbered to prove You cannot claim them Might as well blame it on the hours Help me along Send my little song To the great big Go to 
Montrealer Daniel Isaiah and congratulations to Freddie who won tickets to his show tomorrow night at the Rialto at uh, Pop Montreal. Daniel Isaiah is playing with uh, Arthur Ashe, a really incredible performer from Paris and Daniel Isaiah has been on Stadel Montreal and he has uh, a really amazing, amazing performance style so I encourage you guys to all check it out at the Rialto tomorrow night at Pop Montreal. We gave away tickets to that and to, to last night's show of Peaches, the Peaches DJ extravaganza and we gave them away on the stadelmontreal.com website to anybody who was willing to leave a comment on an article that we put up called High Hoes Invade Montreal and the High Hoes uh, is short-term, shtetl short-term for high holidays. Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, these are the high holidays, and that's the time of year that we're at. And I'm still giving away prizes, so if you want to win a copy of the very inspiring so-called movie or a few pairs of tickets to Lemud, then go on to shtetlmontreal.com and leave your comment about what the high hoes mean for you. And just to take a step back, Lemud is a festival that's happening for the second time in Montreal. It's a festival of arts, culture, and learning. There is an incredible lineup of uh, speakers and guests and events and music and one of the featured guests is Daniel Saradsky, and that's why he's on the show today. So you'll get to meet him in person in Montreal and hear one of his three sessions, one of which is on psychedelics and the Bible. And we're going to hear a little bit more about that later. Uh, so it's perfect with the hi-ho theme. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other articles on the website that you can check out. Hello, God. It's me, a Semite. That's by Jared Tanney. He has a few grievances, and he writes about them to God, and believe it or not, God answers him. And there's another article, which is an interview with Ari Lev Fornari. Ari Lev Fornari is a rabbi in training at a post-denominational rabbinical school in Massachusetts, and he's here in Montreal leading high holiday services for a community called the Myland Chavura. 
So check that out at shtetlmontreal.com. So before we get to, to hearing about Daniel Sarazki's take on psychedelics and Judaism, he is going to tell us what he feels Occupy Judaism was originally about. This is a bit of a heavy clip, and I think it's a very important one, and it's not a voice that we often hear in the Jewish community. So I, I'm really, uh, I'm really happy that that Daniel felt. I mean, I don't think I don't think he thinks twice about saying what he really thinks, and I think that the community really needs that. And Saradsky had shared with me that his own parents had been hit really hard by the the recession that precipitated Occupy Wall Street, um, and they weren't able to make mortgage payments and. And so this is also a very personal issue for him as well. And in this clip, he explains what exactly Occupy Judaism is about. You know, the broader idea behind Occupy Judaism was to encourage people to take back the brand of Judaism from the establishment, which misrepresents the will and interests of the majority of American Jews. You know, we have an American Jewish leadership that is so far to the right of where the rest of us are politically, and that is so um, milk toast in its religiosity and in its you know approach to integrating faith and social justice work that it really doesn't seem to serve the needs or interests of my community at least and 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 of the you know thousands of other Jews that I've connected to around the country who feel alienated from those institutions and so. Occupy was a was a call to action for people to to take it on you know for themselves to say Judaism is what I want to make it not what a denomination calls it or not what a Jewish federation calls it or not what you know the government of Israel calls it it's what I call it and it's what me and my friends are doing and I can find inspiration in Jewish source material and in Jewish history to substantiate my worldview and I don't have to be you know uh, called marginal or uh, you know a fake Jew or self-hating Jew or anything else because I see it differently from you. That was really part of the goal um, of, of, of Occupy Judaism overall. Um, I think another piece of it was to say that the banking crisis was precipitated by many large Wall Street firms that are dominated by Jewish executives who um, aren't just incidentally Jewish, but who are major donors to Jewish organizations, to the state of Israel, to local synagogues in New York City. And our Jewish establishment was giving them a moral pass in exchange for their tzedakah. You know, there was no um, criticism coming out of uh, Jewish leadership circles condemning the actions of the members of our own community for their, you know, for the greed and corruption that they took in and that had devastating effects on the economy. And it's not to say that, you know, the whole thing was the Jews, because clearly there's like tons of non-Jews involved in the finance industry. Clearly, if you look at the list of, you know, the, the, the CEOs of the top uh, uh, top ten banks, excuse me, none of them are Jews, you know, so I'm not saying that, you know, the Jews brought down banking, but there are so many Jews who are involved in banking, and particularly, you know, like, Bear Stearns invented the credit default swap, and the executive of Bear Stearns, Ace Greenberg, was a top fundraiser for the UJA Federation in New York, and he hosts an annual Wall Street dinner where he brings in tens of million dollars from the UJA, from Jews and non-Jews alike, the guys who destroyed the economy by making people like my parents homeless. 
you know? And so they take that money and they give it to Tzedakah. And I think that that's disgusting, and it's also forbidden under Jewish law. Uh, you know, the Rambam says that a mitzvah that is done by committing a sin is not a mitzvah. You know, so that was like really the bigger overarching idea that I was trying to get out there was that um, these people don't get a pass and our Jewish leaders shouldn't be giving them one. I'm sure you've done public speaking events or had conversations with leaders in the community who are donors or who you feel are doing tzedakah by also at the same time committing sins. What responses have you gotten from discussions you've had of this nature publicly? So I have two instances that stick in my mind. One is I had a public debate with John Risquet once. John Risquet is the CEO of the UJA Federation of New York. So John Risquet and I kind of debated the Jewish establishment tendency to allow wealthy oligarchs to determine Jewish communal policy and how these people don't represent the broad majority of, uh, of Jews and their values. And his, uh, his response to me was, so go do your own thing. Look, you know, we're going to work with who we work with, and, you know, we still do good work, and, you know, if you don't like it, that's your problem. You know, you don't come to us for money. Don't try, you know, we say, he, you know, he was really, it was funny because he said to me, well, come and get involved and come and get involved in a committee, and, you you know, you'll see we'll take anybody. And I said, yeah, but the, the amount of money I give determines which committees I sit on and how much power I have on those committees. And, he, you know, he tried to minimize it, but we all know that that's the truth. And so money is what plays at a federation in terms of decision making. And so he kind of like admitted that straight up and said, well, look, if you're not happy with it, go do your own thing. Why are you trying to change us? You know, like you don't need us. You can be successful on your own right. I was like, fine. Thank you for convincing me not to, you know, try to salvage the establishment, but to rail against it instead. Um, And then the other instance was with a major Jewish social justice leader who's the CEO of a very prominent Jewish social social justice organization. We were at a conference on Jewish social justice values, and I asked this person in front of an entire room full of young Jewish leaders and social justice activists, um, you know, so many Jewish social justice organizations get their money from these Wall Street titans and these corrupt CEOs who get their money from destroying people's lives. Wouldn't it be better to turn around to these people and say, you know what, maybe next year do a little less damage, make a little less profit, and then you wouldn't have to donate as much to us to undo the damage that you've done. And she said to to me in front of this whole crowd, look, man, is their money green? And that that was all I needed to hear, (laughs) you know? And it's like, you see, nobody really actually cares enough to take a stand against this broader sense of corruption because they're more interested in the money flowing into their organization. They don't care where the money comes from. They don't care if it's, you know, Bertie Madoff who funded their organization. They just care that the organization is funded. And they'll kiss, you know, whoever's butt needs to be kissed and tell them whatever they need to hear and, you know, change whatever policies and whatever, you know, public political positions they need to change to accommodate that money. Okay, I have a question to ask you about that. I hear what you're saying, but not being an economist and most people not really understanding, you know, what the consequences are of being anti-capitalist or of the Wall Street movement. If, let's say, some of the major donors, it was decided by a federation that they wouldn't take their money. And then the next year, they didn't have money to give out to poor people in their community or to help unemployed people. Where would that help come from? Where would that money Um, come from? 
Well, you know, look, I, I don't have a, a simple answer for that. What I will say is my parents are now, you know, are, are on the verge of homelessness and are in need of charity, and they wouldn't have been in need of charity in the first place if these Wall Street CEOs hadn't, hadn't engaged in the practices in which they engaged in. I'm not saying that there's no um, honest way to make money as an investment banker. I mean, I think it's really hard, but, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I don't think that it's the, you know, most absolutely purely evil industry on the face of the earth uh, by itself. And so the point isn't to say you shouldn't take any money from Wall Street ever. The point is to say you shouldn't take money f from people on Wall Street who engage in corrupt and illicit practices that um, impoverish people. And you should be encouraging the members of our community who are your donors to engage in appropriate business conduct by teaching them Jewish business ethics um, and, and, you know, uh, social justice ethics that apply to the work that they do on a daily basis and ensure that, you know, the money that you're taking isn't coming out of somebody else's pocketbook through the process of exploitation. So that was Daniel Saradsky, spokesperson for Occupy Judaism, and you'll be able to hear him speaking about Occupy Judaism and other things at Lemud this year on October 14th. And we're going to actually hear one more clip from him a little bit later on on a totally different subject um, on uh, psychedelics and the Bible. But before that, I wanted to play a song uh, by Harry Belafonte, because last night in Montreal, he was given the honor of receiving the Black Film Festival's first ever humanitarian award. They showed a documentary about his life called Sing Your Song. And Belafonte is known for his activism in the civil rights movement, and he's worked with Nelson Mandela, with Martin Luther King, and still at 85 years old today, he's involved in advocacy work, and the issue that he's uh, most involved with is working for incarcerated youth and, and their rights. And at every concert, he says he plays two songs, and one of the songs that he plays at every concert is Havana Gila. So take a listen. This is Harry Belafonte. Havanagila, 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 Nismacha, Havanagila, 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 Nismacha, Havanaranena. Ava naranana, ava naranana, nismacha. Ava naranana, ava naranana, ava naranana, nismacha. Uru, uru achim. Beautiful, beautiful. Harry Belafonte, Havana Gillis, like honey. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we're going to hear this uh, one more clip from Daniel Saradsky uh, about psychedelics and the Bible. And then after that, we're going to hear some responses that were on the shtetlmontreal.com website. Marley Wasser is going to be reading those for us, how people celebrate and honor the Jewish holidays in their own special way. So Marley Wasser is going to read that after. But first, Daniel Saradsky talks to us about what exactly the stoned ape theory is. Where does human consciousness come from? How did people evolve from apes into human beings with complex language and um, social structures and uh, the ability to um, create art and objects, tools? You know, what was the trigger? So in Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 A Space Odyssey, you know, he looks to answer this question by sending an alien obelisk, uh, monolith, um, down from outer space into a clearing in a prehistoric Earth where a bunch of chimpanzees saunter up to this monolith, and one puts his hand on the monolith and all of a sudden looks over to a bone lying on the ground and realizes, hey, I can use that as a tool and as a weapon. And then the next thing you know is he's throwing the bone up in the air and it turns into a spaceship, right? Mm -hmm. So Terence McKenna, who was an ethnomycologist, which is a person who studies the, the place of mushrooms in tribal cultures, he suggested, why does it have to be this alien life form that comes down from another planet? Why does it have to be this foreign source of intelligence when we know that there are things that grow and occur naturally right here on the Earth that have the effect neurochemically of altering the way that our brains work and allowing connections to be made between different synapses that would never otherwise talk to each other, allowing us to have more creative ideas, more original thoughts, um, and taking us beyond the narrows of our predefined worldviews. Um, and so he said, why not magic mushrooms? You know, why couldn't magic mushrooms be the trigger instead of this alien intelligence? And so if you look at the way that psychedelics affect the brain, you'll know that they, you know, reroute signals from one place to another that uh, otherwise, you know, wouldn't be routed. So, you know, uh, the input from your eyes will go to the parts of your brain that hear, and you'll, you know, hear what you see. Or, you know, you'll um, hear a sound and you'll see it. You know, these just different kinds of sensory effects that you get from, from, from taking hallucinogens. And so uh, the Stone Ape theory posits that the reason that human beings evolved from apes is that apes ate psychedelics, and it unlocked a door to, you know, kind of a, a new dimension in consciousness that allowed them to evolve from that primitive state towards, you know, the homo sapiens that exist today. Hmm. Wow. So you believe that magic mushrooms are responsible for the evolution of who we are as human beings today? Uh, I, I posit it as a plausible theory. I do not say with certainty, um, but I believe that they absolutely have played a critical role in the, um, in the establishment of civilization, which can be demonstrated by the fact that 
um, psychedelics have been at the center of almost every uh, tribal culture historically and became the basis around which those cultures formulated their myths, which then became the basis for their morals, which became the basis for their laws, which became the foundations for their societies. And so it's unquestionable that these substances have played a massively transformative role in the shaping of human history um, and that they have tremendous power to um, to shape who we are and what we believe as people. Okay. Have you ever done ayahuasca? I have tried it once in Israel uh, with a group that calls itself Judeo Daimi, um, which was trying to take the Daimi ritual of the you know Amazon and recontextualize uh, it into a Jewish ritual. And I actually felt that it was a Vodazara. It felt really foreign, and obviously Daimi is like the Christianization of the uh, Amazonian uh, ayahuasca uh, rite. And so, you know, it, it really felt trace to me, and I didn't even trip uh, because I thought it was a bunk batch or something. But the whole experience just felt really not Jewish to me. And I was more compelled by that experience to try to find a, uh, a genuine, authentic Jewish psychedelic experience by trying to unearth one in Jewish lore. And, you know, I think that uh, it's possible to have uh, such a ritual and for it to be authentic, and that's part of what I'll be teaching about uh, in my session at Remote. Interesting. Um, we're running out of time, so I'm cutting that clip short, but it's perfect as a teaser for Daniel Saradsky's session at Lumud, the stoned ape theory. Check it out. Um, so Marley Wasser's here, and she's going to read some of the responses on the website from the article, High Hose Invade Montreal. What did some people say uh, how they celebrate the high holidays? Okay, well, here's a response from Jay Mitchell. He says, I've been known to celebrate Roach Hashanah and Hotbox Asuka or two. Uh-huh. <laughs> and now we've got another response from Damien who says, Well, high hoes were one of the few acceptable reasons to skip school, public school, a long time ago in Buenos Aires. But the landmark was gorgeous over copious meal at my mother's mother's house without any mention ever of religion or even Jewishness. And for years, I believed it was my boobie's birthday. Uh-huh. So if you want to leave your comment, go to shtetlmontreal.com. We want to hear how you get down with the high hose. And we're going to hear a song from Snowblink, who is going to be playing at Pop Montreal this weekend. And then we're going to be on with Daniela Gesundheit to hear the Col Nidre. <laughs> Thank you. 
a beautiful track off of Snowblink's new album, Inner Classics, and Snowblink is going to be playing at Pop Montreal this weekend. And we've got on the phone with us the singer of Snowblink, Daniela Gesundheit. Welcome to Shtetl on the shortwave. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. So how are your holidays going so far? So far, so good. It's been um, a really busy time of year. I think certain years I've been afforded the luxury of a lot of sort of reflective time at this time of year, but um, not so this year. <laughs> Is that because of the new album that's out? Because you're touring and stuff? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've been touring and and just sort of um, fielding the release of the record. And um, But luckily I've got like a, a good storehouse of introspective time, so I can, <laughs> I can just draw on that. So, Daniela, this is, I think, the third year that you're on Shtetl uh, doing the Kol Nidre, and it's a big honor for us to have you do this. Oh, it's such an honor for me as well. (laughs) It is? Oh, sure. Okay, awesome. Glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, I think for some people who might not have heard of the Kol Nidre prayer, it would be great if you could just kind of give us an introduction. What does the prayer actually mean, traditionally speaking, and what does it mean for you? Sure. So, it's actually, um, traditionally, it's basically a legal document. It's written, the language of it is all legalese. It's basically a prayer that asks for all the vows and promises and obligations and oaths that the group of people, the Jewish people, have sworn and and vowed in the past year that they be annulled. So it's kind of a strange request, really. It's, you know, saying, well, if I made any promises and I couldn't keep them, let's annul them and start over. So it it really is a, a sort of attempt at a clean slate so that people can move forward it seems strange, you know, like, well, it's your word. Why Why would you go back on your word? But in the context of the high holidays, if you zoom out a little bit, this, this prayer is sung after a week of prayers where people will ask forgiveness from their friends or their family. They'll basically go to people in their community and ask for forgiveness. And so it's in that context of having spent a week really doing their best to ask for forgiveness for anything that they might have done wrong. So then at the end of that, they can then go to God or or to themselves or however you interpret, you know, praying um, and, and say, I've done everything I can. If I can't keep this promise at this point, can we just annul it so I can start anew? Yeah, and that's the context of it, and it's a very, very dramatic moment. I would say it's the most dramatic 
moment in the liturgy, in the yearly liturgy in Judaism. It's um, two people come up and hold Torahs, as, and the Torahs are supposed to act as witnesses. So it's almost, there's a parallel, you know, with swearing on the Bible in court or something like that. It's like the, you swear, uh, or like you, you ask for this in the presence of these texts, um, these holy texts. So, and um, the prayer is recited three times in a row, and, and with increasing sort of fervor <laughs> as as you recite it. So it's and everybody stands for the entirety of the prayer. So it's a really the ritual surrounding it is very is highly dramatic. Okay, thank you for that explanation. Yeah. Uh, do, yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's good. It's good to be reminded what you know what the prayer is about and what it means so that when we actually go into it if we are going to sing it or you know that we have some understanding of what we're doing so thank you and is there any special meaning that this prayer or that you know the Yom Kippur has for you personally yeah well I mean there's there's a lot of a lot of levels of the meaning of this holiday certainly for me um but I think in the past five years as I've become a leader in a congregation, that, that meaning has really changed. It used to be a moment of just extreme introspection and, and you know, you're supposed to fast on Yom Kippur. So when I would have the willpower to actually do that, <laughs> um, I would really, you know, feel the, the effects of that, of just abstaining and really trying to see what was going on inside and, and really trying to go to the people in my life and ask for forgiveness where I, where I needed that. But now, as a leader of a congregation, I think, gosh, I, I guess it's, I see the prayer as sort of like a, a lighthouse, and I'm just sort of like directing the light from the lighthouse, and I'm, I'm saying, look in this direction and see what's there that, that you weren't seeing because it was dark, and now we're illuminating it. Okay, That's nice. kind of how, what, what the prayer means to me now, or, or how I experience it now. It's mm-hmm, a nice image. Um, so it's always hard to say, you know, go for it with Kol Nidre. <laughs> yeah. And you're on. Um, so uh, I'm, yeah. just gonna, I'm just going to take a step back and, and keep quiet and let you start when you feel ready. So take your time. Sure. And did you, is there time for me to sing it through three times or should I just do one repetition? You know, I think it might. Uh, I think it might uh, be best to just stick to one one repetition. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so I would just um, encourage everyone to just imagine that scenario that I had just described. So um, just to have some context for where this prayer might be said, and I think the melody itself carries a lot of that drama, um, so you'll be able to perceive some of it. But it is helpful to imagine the ritual because that I think the experience of enacting that ritual just adds to the experience of hearing the music of it so Ooh, <laughs> 
tabana udakharimna vadiyasarna alnafshatana miyom kipurim ve aryom kipurim haba I could definitely listen to that two more times without a doubt. <laughs> Thank you so much, Daniela. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. Um, so before I let you go and wish you a very happy new year, uh, I wanted to ask you if you could let us know where Snowblink is going to be playing tonight at Pop Montreal. Sure. Well, we're, we're actually playing an in-store performance at Sinopolis at 4.30 p.m. this afternoon. And then our Pop Montreal show is an arts and crafts showcase at Club Lambie. Okay. Is that tonight? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tonight. Perfect. I can't wait to see you guys live today. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Okay. Take care, Daniela. Okay. You too, Tamara. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Whew. Beautiful. That was Daniela Gesundheit of Snowblink, and uh, you can check them out at Pop Montreal. And I find that uh, that kind of beautiful, melodic, spiritual tone that you just heard really finds its way into Snowblink's music, even though it is really not Jewish music at all. Um, there's something very uh, moving and spiritual about it. So if you're if you're looking for that, then then definitely check it out, especially because it's going to be on Friday night. So it's a totally uh, Shabbat concert activity thing to do um, for some people. Uh, so that brings us to the end of Shtetl on the shortwave for this Yom Kippur special. I want to give a, a really big thank you to Daniel Saradsky for doing what he said is his last interview as a Jewish public figure. And we look forward to seeing him here in Montreal for Lamoud on October 14th. Thank you to Daniela Gesundheit, to Marley Wasser for her help on the show. And of course, I want to wish all the listeners of Shtetl on the shortwave, whether you're Jewish or not, a very peaceful new year with only good things and we're going to go out with a song from a montreal band that's playing at pop montreal they're called 
first you get the sugar and uh, you can check them out they're playing september 21st that's tonight at 8 30 p.m at opatrovis photographs 